Well, I want to ask you to, if you have a Bible, to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue this series. In 1 Peter 4, looking at uh, the, the, the wisdom that Peter has for Christians living in anxious and unfriendly times. What does it look like to live uh, lives that are resilient, lives where we bounce back in the face of adversity? How do we uh, navigate life in a world that uh, doesn't necessarily share the culture or the values and the, uh, the beliefs um, of God's people. Uh, what does that look like? Peter is our guide. Um, and so I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Peter 4 as we continue this series. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 1. Peter says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, <clears throat> passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, I wonder if you've ever had one of those dreams that seems to invade real life. Uh, a dream where even after waking up from, from this dream... You're kind of the, the mental state that this dream has left you in. Um, you know, I think we've all had something like that. I, I have this dream on occasion where I'm in my final year of seminary and I have to write my dissertation. And um, in real life, the dissertation did not go exceedingly well, okay? And, uh, but in this dream, it's like the day before the dissertation is due. And I haven't started it yet, and it's going to be 10,000 words, and, and, uh, and I wake up in this panic thinking that I didn't gra I'm not going to graduate seminary, and my whole life is going to fall apart because everything that comes after is sort of contingent upon that degree. And I have this dream, and I wake up kind of panicking, and I'm, and I'm like, it's invaded real life, and I'm worried that, that I'm going to get found out that I'm a fraud, that I'm not really supposed to be... A pastor because I didn't I didn't finish this work and and uh, and I'm, I wake up and I'm anxious and then I go oh yeah I remember 
I graduated from seminary. And I can go downstairs and look in this place in my little closet office where I have my degree hanging on the wall that says I graduated and I did, uh, I did finish that dissertation <laughs> by the skin of my teeth. Um, the way that, that we perceive ourselves affects the reality of the way that we live. Even in kind of a silly example, waking up with a dream that has affected our, our self-perception can actually bleed over into real life. So much so that even a false impression of ourselves, the product of a, of a bad dream or a, you know, an upsetting uh, conversation with a friend or a boss or a parent or even just a lack of self-awareness can dramatically affect that, that false perception can dramatically affect the way that we actually live our lives. And because of that, Peter's goal throughout this letter is to remind us of who we really are. To remind us of who we are in Christ. That we might live lives that have been transformed by the gospel. And so in this section, Peter sets out again to remind us who we are in Christ and how the, the, the reality of our identity in Christ transforms our behavior in this life. Uh, we see in verse 1, Peter encourages us, in verse 1, Peter encourages us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that characterized Jesus. He says, think like Jesus thought, so that your life might be transformed. And then verse 7, he further reshapes our self-perception, saying that the end of all things is at hand. He's saying that we live now in the present as Christians in light of the future, in light of the reality that Jesus is on his throne, that he will one day return, that everything will be made right. That future reality affects everything about the way that we live. Our, our belief that the future, um, you know, if our belief is that the future is, is hopeless, that uh, we, we become cynical about the future, uh, we become disillusioned, that becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. When we expect things to go poorly, and we, that, that kind of f f uh, figures into the way that we see ourselves, then things tend to go <laughs> poorly as a result. But on the other hand, if confidence that Jesus is on his throne and the future is sure uh, affects our, our, our view of the world uh, and the way that we perceive our place in the world, then we will be enabled to live with hope and even in the midst of confusing and chaotic times. Our identity in Christ transforms every single thing about our day-to-day -day lives. So here's what I want you to see in this passage this morning. What does grace look like in practice? What does grace look like in our day-to-day -day lives? Grace is the core of the message of Christianity, the, the news that God uh, is reconciled to us, not because of what we do for him or to earn it, but simply because of his unmerited favor based on the work of Jesus on our behalf. That is the central message of Christianity. But often it seems like that the, the message of grace maybe transforms our future. Maybe it transforms, maybe it affects like the, the, the moment that we become a Christian. Maybe it uh, impacts kind of key moments or turning points in our lives. But often we feel like our normal everyday, day in, day out lives are up to us. 
that, that they're all on our shoulders. Well, Peter says and shows us that that is not the case. Peter wants us to see what grace looks like in practice. How does, how does grace actually transform us in our day-to-day lives? And so three things that I want you to see about, about the nature of the grace that transforms us in this passage. And the first is I want you to see the logic of grace, the way that grace operates how does grace actually transform the way our lives? We have to see that there's a, there's a logic to the, the way the gospel uh, grabs hold of us as we are and changes us into people who live more and more the way that Jesus has called us to live. Uh, the one thing that the Bible never does is sort of the, the parent play. You know, the parent play is, is when your kids, when you tell your kids to do something and they say, why? And you answer them and then they say, why? And you answer them and they say, why again? And you go, just because I said so, okay? <laughs> you just got to take my word for it. Um, please just do what I'm asking you just because I said so. God never does that in the Bible. Um, the, the, even, even though he's pro- God's the one person who has the right to say because I said so, he doesn't, he doesn't treat us that way. There's a logic. God, God tells us why we ought to live um, transformed lives. And so to see how the logic of grace works, I need to remind you of something that I think we talked about when we looked at um, 1 Peter 1 or 2. Sort of the, the grammar nerd explanation for the way that the logic of grace works is this, that the indicative precedes the imperative. Uh, the indicative precedes the imperative. The indicative comes before the imperative. Indicative and imperative are grammatical moods. Indicative is a mood that conveys things as they are. They're statements of fact. An imperative uh, is a mood that communicates or conveys what ought to be. And so the indicative, what is true, leads to the imperative, what we ought to do. So example, indicative, the dog is outside. Imperative, take the dog outside. The indicative, the reality of who you are in Christ, leads to how we ought to live in the present. When it comes to the Bible, we have to understand this. Whenever God gives us instructions, he's always basing the imperative on the indicative, on what has already been accomplished for us in Christ. So, uh, for example, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, imperative, you shall have no other gods before me. God's grace to us in the indicative always comes first and then leads to a statement about how we ought to live in light of what God has done for us. And so we see this here in this passage because uh, in verse 7, you see the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you know, it, it... It's implying there's a connection between what has come before and what is coming after. And so what you see in verses 1 through 6 is a bunch of statements of the indicative. What is true of you because you are in Christ, therefore causes the imperatives, the commands of verses 7 and following. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, verse 1, therefore, verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And what he's saying is that the reality of what Jesus has done for you on the cross has both reason and power. Christianity is not just empty moralism. God isn't saying, live this way because I said so or because that's what good people do. No, Christianity is saying, remember who you were. 
that list in verse three, um, I think we have to, uh, of, of like really overt heinous sinfulness, I think we have to admit is, is, is um, or we have to assume is a, a description of the way of life that the original readers of this, uh, this, this book would have been involved in before they had become Christians. That's not theoretical behaviors. It was their former lifestyle, but Peter is saying the cross has power. On the cross, Jesus suffered, and his suffering put sin to death. And because Jesus has put to death sin on the cross, we cannot therefore go on living in sin. And I think in order to understand that, we have to kind of acknowledge two things when we read this list of sin or sins. Um, first is that maybe it's sort of embarrassing, drunkenness, orgies, debauchery. <laughs> oh gosh, like, why is the Bible talking about this? But we have to acknowledge, like, this is a reality of life that exists, not just in ancient times where people were less moral, but every day in, in, in Orange County, too. But also that there are more respectable sins that are perhaps more... Um, uh, common to those of us who are the sort of people who would find ourselves at church on a Sunday morning. Uh, greed, pride, judgmentalism, a failure to love our neighbors, these are sins that um, are, are equally grievous to God. And Peter is saying that Jesus put to death the power of sin on the cross. Through his suffering, he has drained sin of its, of its power. What Jesus has actually done in his life, death and resurrection, it actually leads to a change in the sort of lifestyle that we live. And he makes this statement, um, you know, he, he, that's what he's saying at the first part of verse 1. And then he says, okay, so in verse 1, the second part of verse 1, he says something that's kind of confusing, right? Verse 1, he says, because Christ has suffered, ver, second part of verse 1, he says, if you also suffer, you have stopped sinning. Which is kind of a surprising statement, right? Uh, because none of us have stopped sinning, and yet it feels sometimes like we suffer. What does he mean? Well, Peter immediately continues to kind of qualify that statement. He he says in verse 2, um, well, verse 1, he, whoever has uh, suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that's the rest of the time we are in our bodies, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so what he's saying is because Christ suffered, that we, as we follow him and we also suffer, we are no longer defined by our sinfulness. And in fact, um, the, the cross of Christ actually has the power to change us. There's a way of life that, is, that characterized us before we belong to Christ. But through the cross, Christ breaks the power of sin and sin no longer defines us. But what he says is that that reality, as it plays out in our lives, often involves suffering. Now, I've talked about suffering enough over the last couple of weeks because it's kind of the central theme of First Peter that I feel like I just need to be clear that I don't like suffering. <laughs> I'm not encouraging you to like plan your life in such a way to invite suffering into it. But it's clear that suffering is part of what God uses to actually transform us by his grace. 
And um, Peter's been clear that suffering is going to find us in this life. It's a normal part of the Christian life. And the problem, I think, for many of us in the 21st century is that we have become uh, so kind of con- accustomed to, the, to uh, um, suffering not being the dominant theme of our lives that um, when we begin to experience some measure of suffering, we resist it or we fight it and we kick against it. And Peter is saying that when you encounter suffering, it's actually a sign that God's grace is at work in your lives. When we experience suffering, we go, no, this is horrible. What did I do wrong? And what Peter is saying is when you experience suffering, you should be thinking, this is good. This means that the gospel is at work in my life. And there are two ways that he talks about that in this passage. The first is that as we say goodbye to our former way of life, it will be painful. As we... um, kind of cut out the sin from our lives. It will be like cutting out cancerous cells from our bodies. And it will be painful. And it is a form of suffering. It, it hurts. But then the second thing that he's saying in verse 4 is he's saying that when you stop living a life characterized by sin, your friends and your neighbors are going to mock you. And that will also be a form of suffering. There are forms of suffering that are a result of our own stupidity (laughs) and folly. Um, But there are also some forms of suffering that come as a result of increasing godliness in our lives. And Peter is saying that it's actually the way that grace works. That God uses suffering. He doesn't just sustain us while we suffer. But it's actually the experience of suffering that matures us, that grows us up, that is the, the, the cause or the sort of the instrument of grace in our lives. Let me give you an example I heard this week. Um, remember like the late 90s when they built the biosphere in the middle of the desert in Arizona? This enormous dome, like glass greenhouse terrarium. And the idea was to kind of have this enormous dome that would become a, um, a sort of a, uh, replica of the earth. Not you know, geographically, but there was like an enormous wave pool in there, and there was a jungle, and there were animals, and there were bugs, and I think there were seven scientists that were going to live in the biosphere for like a year or two to do all the, and they expected they would do all these experiments, and they would discover so much, uh, kind of so many new scientific discoveries. Um, but after not too long, the trees started falling down inside the biosphere. And uh, before the trees had reached maturity or begun to bear fruit, the, the, some of the trees just fell over. And they discovered that what was happening was inside this gigantic dome, there was no wind. And because there had not been wind pushing against the trees, they hadn't developed strong enough root systems to support their own weight. And so the point is this, without something to struggle against, we don't develop a foundation that is strong enough to allow us to mature. It's not simply that God sustains us as we suffer, but suffering is actually the thing that he uses in our lives to grow us up, to mature us. So the logic of grace. 
Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection change everything, and so we live in response to what he has done. There's a gospel logic to the way that he transforms us. He doesn't just, God doesn't just ask us to follow him blindly, but he actually um, he tells us how the gospel works. Uh, he shows us the power of the gospel, the indicative leading to the imperative. Speaking of bugs. <laughs> okay, the logic of grace. But what does it actually look like in our daily lives? Well, the second thing in this passage is the strategy of grace. There's a strategy that we see here in this passage. Because the, of the indicative, there is an imperative. Because the gospel is true, Peter says in verse 1, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That is the same way that Jesus thought. And then he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Arm yourselves. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Uh, a strategy, the strategy of grace for life um, in this world. What is he saying? What, what, what he's saying is we need to be prepared. We need to train ourselves in godliness. Uh, there's almost a military-like kind of tone. Arm yourselves, right? Um, be prepared. Be prepared. Be ready. Be intentional. Prepare yourselves. Um, we've, we've got to train ourselves to respond to adversity with grace. We've got to engage in spiritual disciplines to be prepared to withstand temptation when it comes. Why? Well, think about it. Um, a soldier has to be ready before the battle begins. A soldier who you know, is asleep in his bed, isn't much use, is he? Uh, when evil comes, it doesn't, you know, when the, when the war comes, it doesn't come and like knock on the front door and say, are you ready to come out and fight now? And the soldier says, oh, well, let me grab my helmet and my armor. And has anybody seen my weapon? I, I know I had it not too long ago. We have to be prepared beforehand. It's too late to wait until the moment that our, pre- that, that, that we need to rely on that grace. Um, we've got to be prepared ahead of time so that we can respond with grace in the moment. There is an idea in our culture, isn't there, that spirituality should feel organic. That it shouldn't be something that we strive for. That it should just be something that sort of wells up within us. So if you don't really feel like doing something, then don't do it. And that is a lie. <laughs> it is simply not Christianity. Pete Scazzaro is a pastor in um, in uh, Queens, New York, and uh, I've heard him many times talk about this experience where a guy in his church came to him and said, "You know, I've been a Christian for 22 years, but I haven't really matured, and so it's like I've been a one-year-old Christian 22 times." Um, we sometimes live the Christian life without making any effort to train or to prepare of not doing anything if we don't feel like it at the moment. And the result is simply that we, we don't grow up, that we don't mature as Christians. And so we need to, um, we need to rely on the strategy of grace here. You know, um, we sometimes talk about the means of grace reading the Bible, prayer, 
worship, the sacraments, practicing hospitality, engaging in God's mission. Uh, these are all things that God uses to grow us up, to mature us in the Christian life. But we have to attend to them. We have to engage in them. We have to pay attention to them because otherwise, I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like this. Okay, having a uh, having a, a, a membership at Twenty Four Hour Fitness doesn't do me any good if I just pay my monthly dues, but I never go to the gym. Right? I actually have to go to the gym to derive any benefit from that membership. You know, uh, we have to actually pray. We have to read the Bible. Uh, we have to show up at church. We have to prepare ourselves if we're going to respond with grace in the moment. Now, maybe we're thinking, I don't really know how to pray. I, I really don't understand what the Bible is all about, if I'm, if I'm honest. I, don't, I get confused when I read it. Great, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, you're in the right place. But don't remain in that place. Uh, the Christian life is a life of growth. We would love to teach you. We've got to be prepared for the life of grace by training ourselves. But notice also what Peter says. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In verse 7, be sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Uh, yes, we need to be intentional about preparing ourselves with the, the strategy of grace. But notice that he, he's calling particular attention to the, the use of our minds, the use of our intellect, the, um, the way that we need to have an intellectually oriented approach to life in this world. Or in other words, in order to live the lifestyle of grace, we've got to prepare ourselves um, by learning a biblical God-honoring way of looking at the world, of looking at ourselves of understanding who God is. We've got to prepare our minds. I remember, again, when I was in seminary, um, and there, going to seminary is a very weird thing to do because uh, a lot of people do it in three years. If you're like Sam Pepke, you're going to just do it for like 15 years? I don't know. But what happens is you spend a incredible amounts of time you know, every day reading and studying and hearing just the, the depth of the riches of who God is and how he created our world and, and who he is and, and what Christ has done for us and what that means um, in our lives. And so it's this kind of mind-blowing experience of daily be, being confronted with the profound truths of who God is. And it can, I think, begin to feel like um, like pastors have some kind of access to deeper understanding of who God is than, than other Christians. And um, I remember when I was in seminary, we were talking about that reality at lunch one day. And our professor overheard our conversation. And um, I'll never forget our professor overhearing this conversation. And he kind of looked at us and he said, why don't Christians want to know who their God is? And then he just walked away. And I was like, you're not even going to answer that question? <laughs> but there's a tragic reality in the Christian church that 
we often care very little to understand who the God who created us is. And that, that we would all agree to some extent that the reality that God has created us and that he's entered into this world in Jesus Christ to redeem us and transform our lives and he is coming back one day to live again with us, that that truth is the greatest reality in the universe and yet we don't take much time actually learning about who he is and investigating and and, and developing a a gospel-saturated way of looking at the world. We've got to be willing to learn, to read, to talk, to listen, to prepare, to think about the world in a Christian way. And the reason I'm kind of emphasizing this so much is because in this time we are living through right now, this is more true than it has ever been. If there's anything that we have kind of discovered over the last six months, it's that the church in the Western Hemisphere has not been prepared to have our lifestyle shaken. That's just a, a reality. Um, in the Bible, there is this kind of back and forth tension between life in Jerusalem and life in Babylon. In the Old Testament, you see the people of God living in Jerusalem and then getting taken to exile and then coming back and getting taken away again. And the reality is that when you live in Jerusalem, if you are a believer and you're living in Jerusalem, you're living in a place where the, the kind of culture supports your view of the world and it becomes easy to just begin to go with the flow. That your, your faith is not challenged on a, on a daily basis. And it's not a bad place to live, but eventually what happens is that everyone begins to kind of go with the flow and late faith and lifestyle begin to become conflated. And we begin to think of our lifestyle as sort of God's reward for our faithfulness. And then we grow complacent, and then God often allows some form of exile, some form of suffering to come to refine our faith. And what happens is that as God's people get taken from Jerusalem to exile, their, their lifestyle is, is threatened, and they begin to feel like when their lifestyle is threatened, they begin to feel like their faith is being threatened. And they're not the same thing. And so there's this pattern of living in Jerusalem, but then of living in Babylon or living in exile, which is really what Peter's continuing here. And when you live in exile, um, you live in a place where your beliefs, your values, your way of looking at the world are not reinforced by the culture around you. They're not supported by uh, your friends and your neighbors. And so when God's people are taken into exile, a large number of God's people often sort of chuck their faith but God always preserves a remnant who become even more faithful, even more um, bound to who God is. They cling to their faith and they let their lifestyle go. And so this pattern of living in Jerusalem, but then of living in, in Babel or Babylon or exile um, continues. And while many walk away from God, God preserves a a faithful remnant whose faith is purified and they begin to live with intention and purpose and a, and a white hot faith that eventually becomes 
uh, persuasive in the midst of a hostile culture. When their, when their lifestyle is threatened, they cling to their faith. Friends, we are going through this time where, to one degree or another, you know, Christians in the West have had this attitude that we have been living in Jerusalem. We have been living in a place that, is, that nurtures our faith. And yet we're now experiencing this great reshuffle where the Christian faith is, is going to be looked at much differently. And I don't know if this is going to last two years or ten years or a hundred years, but we're in exile now. We're not living in Jerusalem. And what Peter is saying in this passage, and in, in, in the, the reason he writes this book, is to say this is really good news. This is really good news because your faith is going to be refined and your faith is going to be purified. Now, I get that your lifestyle is going to be threatened. And yeah, on some level that hurts. But lifestyle is something that Christians let go as we hold on to our faith. But if we are going to live as joyful exiles of who we really are, if we are going to live out our identity as God's people, we've got to be prepared. We've got to be ready. We've got to know who God is. We've got to arm ourselves through spiritual disciplines to think like Jesus if we are going to be faithful people transformed by grace in this time that we're living in. That's the strategy. Thirdly, finally, the lifestyle. The lifestyle of grace. And like I said, when you live in Jerusalem, eventually lifestyle and faith get conflated. And you begin to think of lifestyle, sort of the, the pursuit of a comfortable lifestyle, as God's reward for faithfulness. And then when things shift and God begins to use suffering to refine our faith, the first thing that's under attack is our lifestyle. And because we've conflated faith and lifestyle, when our lifestyle is attacked, it feels to us like our faith is being attacked, even if it's not. There's nothing wrong with a comfortable lifestyle. But a comfortable lifestyle becomes the expectation only when we have become complacent. When we've lived in Jerusalem for so long that we can't conceive of there being another option. When suffering comes, and it always will, what happens is that our lifestyle is threatened. And we cannot take the threatening of our lifestyle uh, we, can't, we can't experience that and think that our faith is being threatened in the same way. It's a threat to our lifestyle of comfort, which isn't bad. It's not, it's, it's not bad to have a comfortable lifestyle, but it's not necessarily good either. It's a, it's, a, it's a worldly lifestyle. And so what Peter shows us here is that there's a different sort of lifestyle. There's a worldly lifestyle that is about comfort there's a lifestyle here that is characterized by grace. And so listen to what he says in verses 8 and following. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use that gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Whoever speaks, speak as, you're, as if you were speaking the oracles of God. 
Whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. A worldly lifestyle is one in which we have been... um, A worldly lifestyle is one in which we try to fill ourselves up through the accumulation of possessions, through the pursuit of comfort. That we come into the world empty and we need to fill ourselves but a gospel lifestyle, a lifestyle of grace, is, when it, is one in which we have been so filled with what God has done for us that we go into the world to give everything away. Since we've already been filled with God's love in Christ, we love each other. And the, des- the essence of love is self-sacrifice. If we have been filled with Christ, we use our homes not as status symbols or places of indulgence, but places of hospitality. And hospitality in a biblical sense means providing a place of welcome and care for outsiders, not just entertaining your friends and family. The lifestyle of grace means that because we have been loved, we love others. The lifestyle of grace means that you are the recipient of a gift. You have been given the life of God himself in Christ. And because you have received that identity as a gift, you use everything you have as a gift to serve others. The lifestyle of grace changes how we use our words. Instead of using our words to talk about ourselves, we use our words to encourage, to speak the truth of who God is, to encourage one another. So let me simply ask you, is this lifestyle, the lifestyle of grace, is it, is it your lifestyle? Is it my lifestyle? Is it our lifestyle? Or if that question is maybe too difficult to answer, think about this. Is that lifestyle the sort of reputation that Christians have in our culture? If it's not, don't strive for that lifestyle. You have to understand the logic of grace. If this lifestyle of grace does not characterize our lives individually or corporately, then the worst thing we could do is buckle down and try harder. Because friends, a lifestyle, striving for a lifestyle of grace that isn't motivated by actual grace will wear you out, will make you jaded and cynical. And so if we are looking at this passage and saying, I don't know if that actually describes my lifestyle, then simply go back to the beginning, to the logic of grace. Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Friends, Jesus loves you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again. He has done everything for you. And that indicative is true when you feel it and even when you don't feel it. Because he loves you, he is transforming you. He is changing you. He has broken the power of sin in your life. And he is making you into the sort of person who lives graciously in this world. Would you pray with me? God, we pray that you would give us the faith 
to believe your word. Would you help us to be brutally honest about ourselves so that the truth might set us free? Would you show us our need for Christ that we might run to him and be changed by him to become people characterized by his grace? We pray it in your name, Jesus.